Our current sermon series is called Ask Anything, and it is based on your questions about Christianity and the Bible. I really believe that curiosity is an essential part of the Christian life. The desire to know and understand more of God and his world is a really good desire. And the great thing is God wants to be known. He really wants us to know and understand him better. Isn't that wonderful? You know, when we, um, when we ask questions about Jesus or the Bible, we are not chasing a fugitive who doesn't want to be caught. We're not trying to find Waldo, okay? We're seeking out the one who is actively seeking us. A number of you ask questions about heaven. What will heaven be like? How will Christians experience heaven? Will I be married in heaven? Lots of questions. This is obviously a huge topic. I'm not going to cover all the bases uh, today, but hopefully uh, we can whet our appetites a little bit. And if you want to explore further, there are some avenues listed on your take-home, inserted inside of your bulletin, and there are going to be three articles at the connections table that you can pick up after the service if you want to explore more about heaven. So check those out. Here's our roadmap for the morning. What will heaven be like? What will we be like in heaven? What will we do in heaven? And then how do we live our lives here and now in light of heaven? So that's where we're going. So first, what will heaven be like? There are a lot of misconceptions about heaven, like this idea that we'll have, you know, we'll we'll be disembodied souls just kind of hovering in outer space, hovering above the clouds. That's not true. Or that heaven is a church service that never ends. Ugh, Or that we will spend eternity sitting on a cloud, bored to death, wishing we had brought a magazine. But biblically speaking, heaven is God's space. Anyone see that video we sent out through the e-blast on Thursday? Check it out. It's listed on your take-home. Heaven is God's space. It's a place of, of beauty and justice and righteousness and peace. And the earth is our space. And there's beauty and goodness to be sure, but there's also sin and injustice and ugliness mixed in. And I suppose the popular conception is that when I die, I leave earth and I go to heaven to be with Jesus. But that's actually not the story that the Bible tells. In the Bible, heaven and earth can overlap. See? For instance, when God created the world and put the first humans in the Garden of Eden, that was both God's space and our space. At the beginning, heaven and earth were one. They overlap perfectly. Later on, God instructed his people to build a tabernacle and later a a temple where his presence would dwell among them. Little pockets of God's presence, God's space invading our space. And then when Jesus came along, he went around saying, the kingdom of the heavens is here and now. In other words, Jesus was bringing God's heavenly reign to the earth in our time and space. Then finally, at the end of history, heaven and earth will once again overlap completely, just like it did in the Garden of Eden. So from now on in the sermon, when I use the word heaven, I'm actually talking about the new earth. Earth as it will be when heaven comes down and God's space becomes one with our space. And the Bible has a wonderfully rich vocabulary for describing what will happen when heaven and earth become one. Words like redemption restoration, release, renewal. They all begin with re. And that's because the earth is good and God is really committed to it. And it just needs to be healed, not, not replaced, not destroyed. I think of, a, of an antique that has become weathered 
that has become scratched and faded over time. But the bones are still good. It still has value. It just needs to be, you know, buffed and sanded and refinished. But once it's restored, wow, we'll see its value. We'll see its worth. According to the Bible, heaven or the new earth will be a physical place. We'll have streets and rivers and mountains and gates and trees and houses. All the things we would expect. There will be incredible continuity between this present earth as we experience it and the new earth. Because it's the same earth. Randy Alcorn said, if we want to know what heaven will be like, the best place to start is by looking around us. The great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones said, what we call heaven is merely life in this world as God intended it. In C.S. Lewis, uh, his, his book, The Last Battle, Lucy and her siblings are mourning the loss of Narnia, that great world created by Aslan, a world that she loves and a world that she assumes has been destroyed forever. And now as she stands on the threshold of a new country, she looks back at Narnia and she feels a profound loss. But as she goes deeper into Aslan's country, she notices something unexpected. Those hills, said Lucy, the nice woody ones and the blue ones behind, aren't they very like the southern border of Narnia? Like, cried Edmund after a moment's silence, Why, they're exactly like. Look, there's Mount Pier with its forked head, and there's the pass into Archenland and everything. And yet they're not like, said Lucy. They're different. They have more colors on them, and they look further away than I remember them, and they're more, more, I don't know, more like the real thing, said the Lord Diggory softly. Suddenly, Farsight, the eagle, spread his wings, soared 30 or 40 feet up into the air, circled round, and then alighted on the ground. Kings and queens, he cried, we have all been blind. We are only beginning to see where we are. From up there, I've seen it all. Entensmuir, Beaver's Dam, the Great River, and Care Paravel, still shining on the edge of the eastern sea. Narnia is not dead. This is Narnia. But how can it be, said Peter, for Aslan told us older ones that we should never return to Narnia, and here we are. Yes, said Eustace, and we saw it all destroyed and the sun put out. And it's all so different, said Lucy. The eagle is right, said the Lord Diggory. Listen, Peter, when Aslan said you could never go back to Narnia, he meant the Narnia you were thinking of. But that was not the real Narnia. That had a beginning and an end. It was only a shadow or a copy of the real Narnia, which has always been here and always will be here. Just as our own world is only a shadow or a copy of something in Aslan's real world. You need not mourn over Narnia, Lucy. All of the old Narnia that mattered, all the dear creatures have been drawn into the real Narnia through the door. And of course, it is different, as different as a real thing is from a shadow, or as waking life is from a dream. The difference between the old Narnia and the new Narnia was just like that. The new one was a deeper country. Every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. I can't describe it any better than that. If you ever get there, you will know what I mean. It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forefoot on the ground and neighed and then cried, I have come home at last. 
This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. Perfect continuity, perfect fulfillment, the same, only different. The Bible presents wonderful word pictures that remind us that heaven is a real physical place. For instance, heaven is a garden. The book of Revelation depicts it as a a life-giving river and a tree so broad that the tree stands on both sides of the river. Heaven is a place of pristine, natural beauty, fruitfulness, and abundance. I imagine that in heaven you can kayak down the Connecticut River and never worry about sunburn, chafing, or sore shoulders. In heaven you can harvest carrots, cucumbers, tomatoes, and sunflowers without straining your back. You can hike Mount Tom and never worry about mosquitoes and blisters. Heaven is a garden, but it's also a city, which means that your work matters. You may be helping to craft the new earth and not even realize it. I wonder what cultural products will make it into the new earth. Will there be an iPhone, an Etch-A-Sketch, a blender, a toboggan, a clarinet? What do you think? Heaven will be a spacious country. It won't all be city. There will be mountains and fields and forests and glades and gardens, and its dimensions will be enormous. There will be no end to what we can explore course the best thing about heaven is that jesus will be there revelation 21 says look god's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them they will be his people and god himself will be with them and be their god in heaven our faith will become sight the poet john dunn imagines that day he says i shall rise from the dead And I shall see the Son of God, the Son of glory, and shine myself as the sun shines. I shall be united to the Ancient of Days, to God himself. No man ever saw God and lived, and yet I shall not live till I see God. And when I have seen him, I shall never die. Theologians call that moment the beatific vision, which literally means a happy-making sight. On that day, we will look upon his face. And we will behold him just as he beholds us. Can you imagine what that moment will be like? A jumble of gratitude, awe, wonder, giddiness, speechlessness, and praise. And I wonder which one will win out. We'll get to look on his face. We'll get to touch his wounds, the very wounds that heal our wounds. We'll get to see the arms that carried our sorrows and carried the cross. We'll gaze into the eyes that sought us out with boundless compassion. A couple of weeks ago, we lost our brother, Tom Vacula. Everyone who knew Tom talks about his hugs. His big, strong, warm, gentle hugs. But even Tom's hugs were just a shadow of God's embrace of God's incomparable strength and warmth and security. Can you imagine what it will be like to be hugged by Jesus in the flesh? Can you imagine? Heaven is a wedding. 
Jesus is the groom and we're his bride, his people from every tongue and tribe and nation, a many-colored bride for a many-colored kingdom. We'll be united with him for all eternity in a union of mutually self-giving love and ever-deepening intimacy that never ends. Heaven will be a feast, a party, with eating and drinking and laughing and storytelling, and we'll linger long around the table enjoying all of God's good gifts. What will you bring to the feast? I can't decide between my Naples-style pizza and my eggplant parmesan. But we get glimpses of that feast, don't we? A good meal, the faces of friends, a story that makes us laugh so hard, tears drip down our legs. That was a joke. <laughs> Little snot bubbles form in our nostrils, which makes us laugh even harder. Can you picture it? Heaven will be a place of healing where the sad things become untrue and tears of sorrow are wiped away where there's no more regret, no more shame, no more loneliness. I imagine that heaven will be a lot like Rivendell from the Lord of the Rings, a place where our strength and our youth and our energy are restored, where we're buffeted from entropy and the effects of time, a place where we climb trees again where it's safe to be vulnerable, where mourning turns to dancing and pain turns to joy. Because Jesus reigns in heaven, justice will flow like rivers and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Each person will receive their due. Each person will be treated with equity and respect and will live in right relationship with each other. There will be no violence or war, no abuse or neglect, no slavery or oppression, no hatred or bigotry. Heaven will be a place of ecological and biological diversity. The prophet Isaiah says that there will be animals in heaven. They are, after all, part of God's good creation. I wonder if we'll see animals that nowadays are extinct. Joni Erickson Tata says, if God brings our pets back to life, that wouldn't surprise me one bit. It would be just like him totally in keeping with his generous character, exorbitant, excessive, extravagant, of all the dazzling discoveries and ecstatic pleasures heaven will hold for us, the potential of seeing Scrappy again would be pure whimsy. Utterly joyful, surprisingly superfluous, heaven will be a place that refracts and reflects in as many ways as possible the goodness and joy of our great God who delights in lavishing love on his children. Heaven is a physical place, much like this place, only better, only more real, a place of healing and intimacy and joyful celebration with Jesus. what, What will we be like? Have you ever wondered that? Well, you'll be you. Dallas Willard puts it simply, the life we now have as the persons we now are will continue in the universe in which we now exist. You'll be human. You don't become an angel when you die. You stay human. You'll be your unique self. You're not going to be absorbed into some cosmic oversoul. You will retain your your full personhood, your body, your mind, your heart, your personality, your idiosyncrasies, your quirks. They'll all be preserved and perfected. Your resurrected body will be simultaneously the same and different. If Jesus' resurrected body is any clue, we might be able to eat and drink and walk through walls. 
rad, right? The Apostle Paul writes, there's far more to life for us. We are citizens of high heaven. We're waiting the arrival of the Savior, the Master Jesus Christ, who will transform our earthly bodies into glorious bodies like his own. He'll make us beautiful and whole with the same powerful skill by which he's putting everything as it should be under and around him. Joni Erickson Tata herself, a quadriplegic, writes, I can still hardly believe it. I, with shriveled bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees, and no feeling from my shoulders down, will one day have a new body. Light, bright, and clothed in righteousness. Powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope that this gives a spinal cord injured person like me? Or someone who is cerebral palsied, brain injured, who has multiple sclerosis. Imagine the hope that gives someone who is manic depressive. No other religion, no other philosophy promises new bodies, hearts, and minds. Only in the gospel of Christ do hurting people find such incredible hope. Not just our bodies, but our characters will be transformed. The Apostle John writes, Dear friends, we are already God's children. But he has not yet shown us what we will be like Christ when Christ appears. But we do know that we will be like him, for we will see him as he really is. Right now, there is a gap between who we are and who we want to be. And I feel that gap every day. I don't know about you. I wish I was so much more patient than I am less controlling and critical, more flexible and adaptable. I wish I didn't spend so much time wishing other people were more like me. And I know that I am inching closer to that goal, but I can't wait for the day when that gap is closed permanently. And I'm finally free of my pride and my selfish impulses. And of course, when that happens, I'm not going to cease to be me. I'll be me as God intended, the real me. Probably still tall with a long neck. Hopefully the bald spot will be gone. Probably still curious and productive, although probably less obsessively. Probably still passionate about the things I'm passionate about now, only in ways that don't crowd Jesus out of my imagination. But what about you? What will you be like when Jesus appears and the gap closes and everything about you, your whole personhood, shines like the sun? In heaven, we'll have the same five senses, maybe more, who knows? Maybe those senses will be heightened. The deaf will hear, the blind will see. My friend Ryan from high school will be able to smell. I wonder what lavender will smell like in heaven, or what ice cream will taste like, or fresh raspberries. Of course, we'll have feelings in heaven, probably deeper depths of joy, wonder, surprise, delight, and gratitude. We'll have none of the sorrow or the jealousy, none of the insecurity and self-doubt that we wrestle with now. Oh, we'll have desires, lots of them. Desires that no poverty will frustrate. Unbent desires, untwisted by pride, lust, gluttony, envy, and greed. You'll keep your gender, you'll keep your race, all the things that make you, you. We'll delight in one another's differences and never resent them or be frightened by them. The things that you're good at now, you'll probably be good at then. I imagine Steve Pearson will still drum in heaven. 
Dan and Pam Dissinger will still have people over for lunch. Jasmine will still write and direct plays. A few of us will require a career change. We won't need doctors or nurses or pastors. I'll have to be content being a gardener or a writer. I'll need something to fall back on when the great shepherd of the sheep appears before our eyes. In the new earth, you will be you, only different. You'll be the best you. You'll be the real you. All right, what will we do? I think that there's a fear that heaven will be boring, that after a while we'll run out of things to do. Mark Buchanan offers this. Why won't we be bored in heaven? Because it's the one place where the impulse to go beyond and to go home are perfectly joined and totally satisfied. It's the one place where we're constantly discovering, where everything is always fresh and the possessing of a thing is just as good as the pursuing of a thing. And yet where we are fully at home, where everything is as it ought to be, and where we find undiminished that mysterious something we never found down here. And this lifelong melancholy that hangs on us, this wishing we were someone else, somewhere else, vanishes too. Our craving to go beyond is always and fully realized. Our yearning for home is once and for all fulfilled. The ah of deep satisfaction and the aha of delighted surprise meet and they kiss. Always discovering, always at home, always surprised, always satisfied, never bored. Of course, we'll worship. There will be times where we'll find ourselves so captivated and enraptured by Jesus' beauty that all other activity will cease and we'll be lost in wonder, love, and praise. And many other times when we'll worship Jesus just as we go about our daily tasks. When God created Adam and Eve, he told them to rule over the creation. In a fallen world, ruling is often confused with dominating and exploiting. But in heaven, we will rule by bringing the best out of creation, conserving, cherishing, cultivating, developing it. In heaven, we'll figure out how to create culture without destroying nature. Of course, there will be work in heaven. The author Victor Hugo wrote, I feel within me that future life. I am like a forest that has been raised. New shoots are stronger and brighter. For half a century, I have been translating my thoughts into prose and verse. But I feel I haven't given utterance to the thousandth part of what lies within me. When I go to the grave, I can say, as others have said, my day's work is done. But I cannot say my life is done. My work will recommence the next morning. The tomb is not a blind alley. It is a thoroughfare. It closes upon the twilight, but opens upon the dawn. Do you grieve the work that you did not have the time or the energy or the means to finish? Take heart, friends. There will be plenty of time. In heaven, we won't have instant knowledge. We will discover and learn things just as we do now. We'll continue to innovate. There will be new advances in engineering and technology, craftsmanship and transportation, architecture and design. Neurologists say that we only use about 10% of our brain's capacity. Imagine what we will be able to create with 100% 
of our glorified intellects and imaginations. Heaven's economy will be a joyful and a neighborly economy where we seek not to exploit and profit from one another, but to delight and serve one another. I have no doubt that there will be art in heaven, both old and new, theater, music, dance, fine arts, sports, all manner of games, and lots and lots of cooking. A friend said to me this week, I've never had the time to travel the world like I've liked. And I look forward to the day when I can travel the earth and see all the glorious wonders that God has made. And of course, in heaven, she'll be able to do all of that without a passport. And her luggage will never be lost. We'll explore creation and see new wonders. I don't see why we wouldn't also be able to explore space. The heavens declare the glory of God, right? Why wouldn't he make that accessible to us? We'll rest in heaven too. What feels better than putting your head on a pillow after a hard day's work? Or sinking into a hammock on a sunny afternoon? Or collapsing into a beach chair with a tall glass of iced tea? In heaven we'll recognize one another. We'll pick up right where we left off. I imagine that we'll probably still have special relationships with family member and friends. We might even have best friends in heaven. And we'll form new relationships with people who lived in different continents, in different millennia. People with vastly different worldviews, and we'll find all of our differences to be fascinating, not threatening. And we'll share a profound kinship with every person that we meet. In heaven, we'll have the freedom to be known and to know others without fear or shame, to be vulnerable without even a shred of insecurity. In heaven, there will be no cliques, no exclusivity, no arrogance, no posturing, no belittling, no jealousy, no one-upsmanship, no baggage, no triggers, no loneliness, no words you wish you could take back. You've tasted it before, haven't you? Your closest friends, your deepest fellowship, your favorite roommate your best holiday celebrations. They give us glimpses, don't they, of the warmth and acceptance and intimacy that awaits us. Jesus said that there would be no marriage in heaven except one. Randy Alcorn explains, there will be one marriage between Christ and his bride. The one flesh marital union we know on earth is a signpost pointing to our relationship with Christ as our bridegroom. Once we reach that destination, the signpost becomes unnecessary. That one marriage, our marriage to Christ, will be infinitely more satisfying than even the most wonderful earthly marriage. In heaven, I know I'll recognize Beth and Brennan and Evie as my wife and my kids, but more fundamentally, they'll be my brothers and sisters. I hope we'll still spend lots of time together, especially since we'll no longer drive each other crazy. (laughs) People wonder about sex in heaven. For many, sex is one of the most pleasurable experiences that earth has to offer, and the idea of a heaven without sex just seems weird, wrong. To that, C.S. Lewis wrote, I think our present outlook might be that of a small boy who, after being told that sex was the highest bodily pleasure, immediately asked whether you ate chocolate while you were doing it. And when he's told no, he might think that the absence of chocolate 
was the chief characteristic of sex. He wouldn't believe you if you told him that the reason why lovers don't bother with chocolate during sex is that they have something even better. The boy knows chocolate. He does not know the wonderful thing that excludes it. We are in the same position. We know the sexual life. We do not know, except in glimpses, that other thing which in heaven will leave no room for it. Heaven is a physical place inhabited with physical bodies. And in that place we will feast and rule and work and rest and play and explore and relate and delight for all eternity with our Savior Jesus. And we will never be bored. All right, final question is, so what? How does this impact our lives here and now? Three quick implications. Jesus said, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. And Jesus is the narrow gate. One day each of us will stand before a holy and just judge And each one of us has fallen short of God's standard of perfect love. And God would be wholly justified in excluding us from his presence on that basis alone. On that day, there is no resume we can bring to gain entrance to his kingdom. All we can say is, I have no righteousness of my own, but I trust in the righteousness of Jesus who loved me and gave himself for me. So the question is, do you know him? Do you trust him? Can you say with the Apostle Paul, my old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Jesus and heaven are a package deal. It is, after all, his kingdom. If we would be miserable in Jesus' presence, miserable bearing Jesus' yoke, we will be miserable in heaven. When I was a kid, my mom used to make homemade spaghetti sauce. She'd get up early in the morning, get it started, and it would simmer on the stove all day. And I loved that spaghetti sauce. And usually around 2 or 3 in the afternoon, after I'd been smelling it for hours and I couldn't take it anymore, I would bomb into the kitchen, pull out a spoon, dip it in, and lick the spoon. A foretaste of the dinner to come. Do you lick the spoon? Do you look for and delight in the glimpses and foretastes of heaven that God gives us here and now? Are we looking for them? Do we notice them? Last weekend, we went to Puffer's Pond as a family, and for about an hour, my son Brendan and I floated together in a small tube, our arms and legs all twisted up in each other, baking under the sun, our toes in the water, laughing hysterically, cackling far too loud for a public place. It was a glimpse a foretaste. I saw my brother for the first time in a, couple of, uh, in, in, a, in a year, a couple of weeks ago, and we went to the beach, and we body surfed until our shoulders felt like creamed corn. And then we threw a frisbee on that part of the beach where the waves and the sand meet. And one of us would get a running start, and the other one would throw it so that it could only be caught at full speed. And each perfect throw, each running catch was awarded with a standing ovation, a hoop and a holler, a glimpse, a foretaste. 
Sometimes when our kitchen is full of smells and full of faces, or when the sun catches a corner of my garden just right, I catch a glimpse of the new Jerusalem. Do you lick the spoon? Finally, the Apostle Paul says, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Is this escapism? Not at all. To set your heart on things above is to value what God values and to seek it with your whole being. In Framingham, I had a friend who used to say, I want my life to be about things that will last forever. Good work, loving people, making much of Jesus. Belief in heaven doesn't mean that you become disinterested in this earth. It means that you plow your energy and creativity and love and service into this earth because you know that it will last forever. Amen.